Chapter Thirteen of the Stones of Venice by John Ruskin. Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Morgan Scorpion. The Stones of Venice by John Ruskin. Chapter Ten: The Arch Line. We have seen in the last section how our means of vertical support may, for the sake of economy both of space and material, be gathered into piers or shafts, and directed to the sustaining of particular points. The next question is how to connect these points or tops of shafts with each other, so as to be able to lay them on a continuous roof. This, the reader, as before, is to favour me by finding out for himself under these following conditions. Let S, S, figure 29 opposite, be two shafts with their capitals ready prepared for their work, and A, B, B, and C, C, C be six stones of different sizes, one very long and large, and two smaller, and three smaller still, of which the reader is to choose which he likes best, in order to connect the tops of the shafts. I suppose he will first try if he can lift the great stone A, and if he can he will put it very simply on the tops of the two pillars, as at A. Very well indeed. He has done already what a number of Greek architects have been thought very clever for having done. But suppose he cannot lift the great stone A, or suppose I will not give it to him but only the two smaller stones at B, B. He will doubtless try to put them up, tilted against each other, as at D. Very awkward this, worse than card-house building. But if he cuts off the corners of the stones, so as to make each of them of the form E, they will stand up very securely, as at B. But suppose he cannot lift even these less stones, but can raise those at C, C, C. Then, cutting each of them into the form at E, he will doubtless set them up as at F. This last arrangement looks a little dangerous. Is there not a chance of the stone in the middle pushing the others out, or tilting them up and aside, and slipping down itself between them? There is much chance, and if by somewhat altering the form of the stones we can diminish this chance, all the better. I must say we now, for perhaps I may have to help the reader a little. The danger is, observe, that the midmost stone at F pushes out the side ones. Then, if we can give the side ones each a shape as that, left to themselves, they would fall heavily forward, they will resist this push out by their weight, exactly in proportion to their own particular inclination or desire to tumble in. Take one of them separately standing up as at G, it is just possible it may stand up as it is, like the Tower of Pisa. But we want it to fall forward. Suppose we cut away the parts that are shaded at H, and leave it as at I. It is very certain it cannot stand alone now, but will fall forward to our entire satisfaction. Further, the midmost stone at F is likely to be troublesome chiefly by its weight, pushing down between the others. The more we lighten it, the better. So we will cut it into exactly the same shape as the side ones, 
chiselling away the shaded parts as at h we shall then have all the three stones k l m of the same shape and now putting them together we have at c what the reader i doubt not will perceive at once to be a much more satisfactory arrangement than at f we have now got three arrangements in one using only one piece of stone in the second two and in the third three the first arrangement has no particular name except the horizontal but the single stone or beam it may be is called a lintel the second arrangement is called a gable the third an arch we might have used pieces of wood instead of stone in all these arrangements with no difference in plan so long as the beams were kept loose like the stones but as beams can be securely nailed together at the ends we need not trouble ourselves so much about their shape or balance and therefore the plan at f is a peculiarly wooden construction the reader will doubtless recognize in it the profile of many a farmhouse roof and again because beams are tough and light and long as compared with stones they are admirably adapted for the constructions at a and b the plain lintel and gable while that at c is for the most part left to brick and stone four but farther the constructions a b and c though very conveniently to be first considered as composed of one two and three pieces are by no means necessarily so when we have once cut the stones of the arch into a shape like that of k l and m they will hold together whatever their number place or size as at n and the great value of the arch is that it permits small stones to be used with safety instead of large ones which are not always to be had stones cut into the shape of k l and m whether they be short or long i have drawn them all sizes at n on purpose are called voussoir this is a hard ugly french name but the reader will perhaps be kind enough to recollect it it will save us both some trouble and to make amends for this infliction i will relieve him of the term keystone one voussoir is as much a keystone as another only people usually call the stone which is last put in the keystone and that one happens generally to be at the top or middle of the arch five not only the arch but even the lintel may be built of many stones or bricks the reader may see lintels built in this way over most of the windows of our brick london houses and so also the gables there are therefore two distinct questions respecting each arrangement first what is the line or direction of it which gives it its strength and secondly what is the manner of masonry of it which gives it its consistence the first of these i shall consider in this chapter under the head of the arch line using the term arch as including all manner of construction though we shall have no trouble except about curves and in the next chapter i shall consider the second under the head arch masonry six now the arch line is the ghost or skeleton of the arch or rather it is the spinal marrow of the arch and the voussoir are the vertebrae which keep it safe and sound and clothe it this arch-line the architect has first to conceive and shape in his mind, as opposed to, or having to bear, certain forces which will try to distort it this way and that, and against which he is first to direct and bend the line itself 
into as strong resistance as he may, and then, with his voussoir and what else he can, to guard it, and help it, and keep it to its duty and in its shape. So the arch-line is the moral character of the arch, and the adverse forces are its temptations, and the voussoir, and what else we may help it with, are its armour and its motives to good conduct. 7. This moral character of the arch is called by architects its line of resistance. There is a great deal of nicety in calculating it with precision, just as there is sometimes in finding out very precisely what is a man's true line of moral conduct. But this, in arch morality and in man morality, is a very simple and easily to be understood principle that if either arch or man expose themselves to their special temptations or adverse forces outside of the voussoir or proper and appointed armour both will fall an arch whose line of resistance is in the middle of its voussoir is perfectly safe in proportion as the said line runs near the edge of its voussoir the arch is in danger as the man is who nears temptation and the moment the line of resistance emerges out of the voussoir the arch falls. 8. There are, therefore, properly speaking, two arch-lines. One is the visible direction or curve of the arch, which may generally be considered as the under-edge of its voussoir, and which has often no more to do with the real stability of the arch than a man's apparent conduct has with his heart. The other line, which is the line of resistance, or line of good behaviour, may or may not be consistent with the outward and apparent curves of the arch. But if not, then the security of the arch depends simply upon this, whether the voussoir which assume or pretend to the one line are wide enough to include the other. 9. Now, when the reader is told that the line of resistance varies with every change either in place or quantity of the weight above the arch, he will see at once that we have no chance of arranging arches by their moral characters. We can only take the apparent arch-line, or visible direction, as a ground of arrangement. We shall consider the possible or probable forms or contours of arches in the present chapter, and in the succeeding one the forms of voussoir and other help which may best fortify these visible lines against every temptation to lose their consistency. 29. Evidently the abstract or ghost line of the arrangement at A is a plain horizontal line, as here at A, figure 30. The abstract line of the arrangement at B, figure 29, is composed of two straight lines set against each other, as here at B. The abstract line of C, figure 29, is a curve of some kind, not at present determined. Suppose C, figure 30. Then, as B is two of the straight lines at A set up against each other, we may conceive an arrangement D, made up of two of the curved lines at C set against each other. This is called a pointed arch, which is a contradiction in terms. It ought to be called a curved gable but it must keep the name it has got. Now at A, B, C, D, figure 30, are the ghosts of the lintel, the gable, the arch, and the pointed arch. 
with the poor lintel ghost we need trouble ourselves no farther there are no changes in him but there is much variety in the other three and the method of their variety will be best discerned by studying b and d as subordinate to and connected with the simple arch at c twenty one many architects especially the worst have been very curious in designing out-of-the-way arches elliptical arches and four-centred arches so-called and other singularities the good architects have generally been content and we for the present will be so with god's arch the arch of the rainbow and of the apparent heaven and which the sun shapes for us as it sets and rises let us watch the sun for a moment as it climbs when it is a quarter up it will give us the arch a figure thirty one when it is half up b and when three quarters up c there will be an infinite number of arches between these but we will take these as sufficient representatives of all then a is the low arch b is the central or pure arch c the high arch and the rays of the sun would have drawn for us their voussoir twelve we will take these several arches successively and fixing the top of each accurately draw two right lines thence to its base d e f figure thirty one then these lines give us the relative gables of each of the arches d is the italian or southern gable e the central gable f the gothic gable thirteen we will again take the three arches with their gables in succession and on each of the sides of the gable between it and the arch we will describe another arch as at g h i then the curves so described give the pointed arches belonging to each of the round arches g the flat pointed arch h the central pointed arch and i the lancet pointed arch fourteen if the radius with which these intermediate curves are drawn be the base of f the last is the equilateral pointed arch one of great importance in gothic work but between the gable and circle in all the three figures there are an infinite number of pointed arches describable with different radii and the three round arches be it remembered are themselves representatives of an infinite number passing from the flattest conceivable curve through the semicircle and horseshoe up to the full circle the central and the last group are the most important the central round or semicircle is the roman the byzantine and norman arch and its relative pointed includes one wide branch of gothic the horseshoe round is the arabic and moorish arch and its relative pointed includes the whole range of arabic and lancet or early english and french gothics i mean of course by the relative pointed the entire group of which the equilateral arch is the representative between it and the outer horseshoe as this latter rises higher the reader will find on experiment the great families of what may be called the horseshoe pointed curves of the highest importance but which are all included with english lancet under the term relative pointed of the horseshoe arch fifteen the groups above described are all formed of circular arcs and include all truly useful and beautiful arches for ordinary work i believe that singular and complicated curves are made use of in modern engineering 
but with these the general reader can have no concern. The Ponte della Trinita at Florence is the most graceful instance I know of such structure, the arch made use of being very subtle and approximating to the low ellipse, for which in common work a barbarous pointed arch called four-centred and composed of bits of circles is substituted by the English builders. The high ellipse, I believe, exists in Eastern architecture. I have never myself met with it on a large scale, but it occurs in the niches of the later portions of the Ducal Palace at Venice, together with a singular hyperbolic arch, A, in figure 33, to be described hereafter. With such caprices we are not here concerned. 16. We are, however, concerned to notice the absurdity of another form of arch, which, with the four-centred, belongs to the English perpendicular Gothic. Taking the gable of any of the groups in figure 31, suppose the equilateral, here at B in figure 33, the dotted line representing the relative pointed arch, we may evidently conceive an arch formed by reversed curves on the inside of the gable, as here shown by the inner curved lines. I imagine the reader by this time knows enough of the nature of arches to understand that, whatever strength or stability was gained by the curve on the outside of the gable, exactly so much is lost by curves on the inside. The natural tendency of such an arch to dissolution by its own mere weight renders it a feature of detestable ugliness, wherever it occurs on a large scale. It is eminently characteristic of Tudor work, and it is the profile of the Chinese roof, I say on a large scale, because this as well as all other capricious arches may be made secure by their masonry when small, but not otherwise. Some allowable modifications of it will be noticed in the chapter on roofs. 17. There is only one more form of arch which we have to notice. When the last described arch is used, not as the principal arrangement, but as a mere heading to a common pointed arch, we have the form C, figure 33. Now, this is better than the entirely reversed arch for two reasons. First, less of the line is weakened by reversing. Secondly, the double curve has a very high aesthetic value, not existing in the mere segments of circles. For these reasons, arches of this kind are not only admissible, but even of great desirableness, when their scale and masonry render them secure. But above a certain scale they are altogether barbarous, and, with the reversed Tudor arch wantonly employed, are the characteristics of the worst and meanest schools of architecture, past or present. This double curve is called the Ogi. It is the profile of many German leaden roofs, of many Turkish domes. These are more excusable because associated and in sympathy with exquisitely managed arches of the same line in the walls below, of Tudor turrets as in Henry the Seventh's chapel, and it is at the bottom or top of sundry other blunders all over the world. 18. The varieties of the Ogi curve are infinite, as the reversed portion of it may be engrafted on every other form of arch, horseshoe, round or pointed. Whatever is generally worthy of note in these varieties, and in other arches of caprice, we shall best discover by examining their masonry. 
for it is by their good masonry only that they are rendered either stable or beautiful. To this question, then, let us address ourselves. End of chapter 10